Okay. Well, by the end of the day, you'll have worked out whether you're sitting next to the right person, won't you? By the end of the day, that'll be pretty clear. Um, we'll do a few more of them as we go through the day. And oh, I'll tell you what, I might even ask you for some answers later on in the day in some of the questions. So we'll, we'll see how we go. Let's have a think about this. Christian hope is a living thing. Christian hope's a living thing because Jesus is a living, well, not thing, but person. See, that is why Peter connects our living hope to Jesus' resurrection. It's the resurrection that brings Jesus to life. It's the resurrection that means our hope is not a dead thing, but a living thing. Jesus is alive, and because of that, so is our hope. We are, our, our hope is so closely united to, to Jesus' situation that our hope is alive. If your hope is in Jesus... Your hope will live as long as the Lord Jesus lives. That's good news, isn't it? That's a secure hope. And you've not just been born again into this beautiful living hope. You've also been born again into an indestructible inheritance. Let's keep reading verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at the three words used to describe your inheritance in Christ. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Can you see its security language? This inheritance isn't going to decay, isn't going to spoil, degrade or diminish. Your inheritance is secure in Christ. And your inheritance is kept for you where your citizenship is, in heaven with Christ. And that means your inheritance is secure and your salvation is secure when you are trusting in the Lord Jesus. Now, did you notice also that you are being shielded or, or guarded by God while you wait for the final reveal of your salvation? Our English translations struggle to bring out the original Greek that Peter wrote in, but Peter's actually saying the inheritance is being guarded and the Christian is being guarded. Can you see the security all the way through this passage? Can you feel the security being emphasized by this passage if you are safe in Jesus, you are secure. Your salvation is securely guarded by God and your eternal inheritance is being securely guarded by God. That is surely a reason for rejoicing. Verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Genuine Christian faith is secure, persevering faith. Faith that perseveres through trials and testing, that's the genuine article. And it is pure and worthy of praise, worthy of glory, worthy of honour. It's not exactly clear in these verses whether the praise, glory and honour 
go to the person having the faith or the God who's given the faith? That's not really clear. We just it will result in glory and honor and 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 uh, glory and honor and uh, praise. But whether that glory and honor and praise goes to the Christian or to the God who gave it, well, we're not told. If you're going to push me on it, I think there's only one guy who deserves praise, glory and honor for my faith, and that guy isn't me. I think I'd go in that direction if I were you too. Now, there's a very interesting little contrast in these verses. The contrast is gold versus faith. Gold versus faith. That's our contrast. I don't know whether you know much about the stock market, but on the stock market, gold is a really interesting commodity because it usually goes up in value when all the other shares go down in value. Really interestingly. Why is that? Because when the market's really going bad, gold is considered to be something that will always be valuable. It's a, it's a safe haven in a time of trouble, if you like. And so gold is, well, there's this belief that gold will always be valuable wherever you are. It's why refugee families sometimes carry their savings with them by wearing it in the form of gold jewellery. Gold is valuable everywhere. Gold maintains its value. You can easily carry it with you. You can easily turn it into cash. My Middle Eastern friends tell me this is one of the reasons why there's so much wearing of gold jewellery in, in their culture. It's because you've, you've always got your savings close to you. It's, it's safe when you're wearing it. And that's why this little contrast, tr- contrast in verse 7 is so interesting. The safest, most precious thing that Peter can think of in our world is unreliable and in, insecure compared to faith in Jesus Christ. Can you see that? Gold that can even be tested and refined by no less than fire still perishes. Faith is more secure. This wedding ring that I have here, it's now about 25 years old. Uh, My sister is a jeweller and she made it and she made it from the best gold you can get. But I think my wedding ring is a bit thinner than when I bought it. I'm losing gold every year. I think it'll get there, Jen. I think, I think we'll get there. But uh, it's not as thick as it was when I, when I first paid for it. Gold perishes. Faith is more secure. You see, when the most precious things of this world have ultimately been burned up by fire, faith in Jesus that has proved genuine will be shown to be the most precious and the most secure thing of all. And this challenges the way we all think, doesn't it? See, I suspect we love Jesus, but we still think about invest, uh, in security in investment terms or, or gold terms. We love the security we have in Jesus, but we still feel the need to have a bit of a diversified share portfolio. We love Jesus and we want to serve him, but we still feel we need the security of an investment property in a growing market. I think we keep we need to keep challenging that in ourselves, don't we? Our thinking about security is upside down. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on, here it is, the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The uncertainty of riches. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? How many of us actually believe that worldly riches are uncertain and insecure? We can read this verse, but it's so hard to believe what these verses are saying about gold and about wealth. In 1 Timothy 6, when when wealth is contrasted against God, wealth is shown to be woefully insecure. In 1 Peter 1, when gold is contrasted against faith in Jesus, gold is shown to be woefully insecure. What will it take to convince ourselves that this is the reality? What will it take? Just before we leave this section of the passage, we need to be reminded of another truth for elect exiles. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What is the relationship between rejoicing and trials? Here's another opportunity for you to have a little chat with the person next door to you. What is the relationship between rejoicing and trials? Do you want to have 30 seconds? Just see what the person next to you thinks. Then we'll have a chat about it together. Okay, let's have a think about it together. Interesting, isn't it? You might know from other parts of the Bible that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, similar kind of idea. James says in James 1 that Christians should consider it pure joy when they face trials because the testing of their faith produces endurance. But here in 1 Peter 1, you might have noticed we don't rejoice in the trials We rejoice in our heavenly security through the trials. That's an interesting little uh, contrast there, isn't it? Even in the middle of trials and suffering, the Christian has reason to rejoice because of those secure things guarded in heaven. The trials being spoken about here are probably the hardships that flow from following Jesus in a society that is against Jesus. Maybe even following Jesus in a family that is against Jesus. Faith in Jesus put these Christians into these difficult trials, but faith in Jesus also guards these Christians through these difficult trials. And finally in this section, we need to think about faith and sight because our world tells us that seeing is believing. Our world says seeing is believing. Is it? Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Though you, may not, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the Bible, seeing is not necessarily believing. Most of the people who saw Jesus in the flesh did not believe in him. Today, we humans trust sight, our own sight. We trust it so highly as the ultimate arbiter of truth because we've removed God and and anything supernatural from the equation. We only trust what we, we can see. It's why science rules the academic debate because the only evidence we can trust, supposedly, is empirical evidence that we can see with our own eyes. But the Bible turns this one on its head. Perhaps most of the people to whom Peter is writing this letter, perhaps most of them had never seen Jesus in the flesh. But Christian faith does not rest on sight. Christian faith does not result from sight. Christian faith rests on truth and eyewitness testimony. Christian faith results from the mercy of God opening blind eyes to see and believe that truth. Listen to what Jesus says to Thomas near the end of John's gospel and listen to where John takes it in the very next verse up on the screen. John 20 verses 29 to 31. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Your eyes haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. My eyes haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. We haven't seen the true country of our citizenship. We haven't seen the precious inheritance that awaits us in our true home. But these verses remind us that these things are more secure and more sure than anything you can see with your eyes in this world. Have you seen where your true security lies? Then it's time to have a look at your privilege. We're at point three, privilege. And our world loves a bit of privilege, doesn't it? Whether it's opportunities that other people don't get, whether it's the social status that that you, you crave that others don't have, whether it's an exclusive school or a university or a job that others don't share, our world loves a bit of privilege. And so if your parents wanted you to have a bit of privilege, I can understand why. But again, our passage speaks into those small worldly hopes and dreams and reminds us that we are looking in the wrong places. Can I read to you verses 10 to 12? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. You know, being one of God's Old Testament prophets was no dream job, if you'll pardon the pun. 
The poor Old Testament prophets, they, they did it really tough. They were often hated and rejected by their own people, the Israelites. They were often persecuted by their own kings. And on top of that, God asked them to do some pretty tough things like marry a prostitute, cook your food using human feces as fuel for the fire, or lay on one side for 390 days. Things that God asked various Old Testament prophets to do. And after all that hardship, these verses that we've just read tell us that those poor Old Testament prophets were never able to completely understand the things that God was promising through them. You've got a feel for those poor guys. They really did work hard, slogging their guts out to prophesy the events fulfilled in the gospel and they were kept from understanding what God was saying through them. And then you and I turn up and by the grace of God and and nothing else, God allows you and me to be born into historical privilege. By the sheer mercy of God, you and I have blundered blindly into this world in the era marked A.D. Anno Domini, year of the Lord, year of the Lord Jesus. What a privilege. And this is the period, the A.D. period, where God has revealed everything he's doing in the beautiful gospel. What a privilege. Let me try to illustrate, illustrate the privilege. Um, back in 2000, do you remember the Olympic Games came to Sydney? I was a poor, struggling theological college student. I had, I had very little money. And so we, we really couldn't afford to pay for many tickets to see events. So a friend and I paid $10 each to see the Greco-Roman wrestling. Now, that's, that's a weird sport. That's, that's really seriously weird. And so that was the only thing I got to see. The only thing I could really afford was a $10 ticket to Greco-Roman wrestling. I was a bit sad about that. And at the last day of the Olympics, I was getting annoyed. The Olympics were, you know, taking up all the city. And, and the last day, the marathon was going to inconvenience me because it was the course pretty much cut me off from where I was living to where I was going to church to preach on a Sunday night. Marathon, Sunday afternoon, clothing, closing ceremony, Sunday night. And so I thought to myself, okay, I, I, I need to preach that night. I need to get to church. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty bad. So I'll just leave early and I'll drive my normal route And when I get stopped, I'll just sort of go round and round and round and round and round until I get back to where I need to be at church. And so I started driving nice and early and I'm listening to the marathon on the radio as it's going on. And as I got to the main main motorway east-west in Sydney, um, which the the marathon was going to run along, I thought surely that'll be closed. But I I got there and the entrance was open, so I, I turned onto the motorway. Thought, this is odd. I wouldn't have thought, you know, I wouldn't have thought it'd still be open at this point. But as I turned around and started on the motorway, I noticed that the lead runner in the Olympic marathon had just run down the other ramp and was running on the other side of the motorway just four metres away from me as I'm driving my car along. Kind of, I'm looking at him, he's looking at me, and this is weird. I don't think I'm meant to be here. I I slowed down to 20 kilometres and just sort of stayed beside him as, as he's running along. And then I noticed that they'd blocked the cars off behind us, so there was no pressure coming from behind me. And I just kind of tracked the lead runner in the Olympic marathon for about a couple of minutes until I got bored of it. And then I just took off. I don't want to brag, but I left the lead runner in the Olympic marathon in my dust. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? The prophets had been prophesying for a thousand years 
and they didn't even get to watch the race. You and I get born into the period of historical privilege where the gospel tells us the whole truth in kind of up-close, live truth. What privilege you and I have. This passage says we have the enormous privilege of having all of God's plans and purposes revealed in the gospel. Don't ever forget that privilege. Can you see that God has blessed you in Christ with the most secure security and the most privileged privilege? And so let's, let's finish there on verse four, or we're at point four, security and privilege. God tells us very clearly that the gospel promises the security and privilege that your parents really wanted for you. And God tells us equally clear, clearly that the other types of worldly security and privilege that your parents might have thought you needed, the gospel tells us they are inferior insecure, untrustworthy alternatives to the true security and privilege that you have in Jesus. Now, I think sometimes uh, as Christians, we, we understand the, the incredible privilege and the incredible security that we have in Jesus. But I wonder whether we want to hedge our bets a bit and still have a bit of earthly security and earthly privilege. And I wonder whether we need to challenge that just a bit and perhaps even some of us might need to, well, disappoint our parents and say, no, no, no I'm, I'm not going for that high-powered job. I'm not going for the, the third investment property because I have security and I have privilege in Jesus. And that is more important. But what about if the shoe is on the other foot? Maybe it's not your parents. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your hopes and dreams. What about when you are the parent with your own kids? Do you think you won't be tempted to want security and privilege for them in some of the wrong places? How will you go about that important role of parenting so that your children know where real security and real privilege is found? Will you model it to them? Will you show them? That what you trust as real security, real privilege. When your children look at your hopes and dreams, will they see that your greatest desire is that your whole family might find its security in the gospel of Jesus Christ and might find its privilege in a relationship with the Lord Jesus? Will your children see that Jesus' gospel mission is what your family hopes and dreams are all about. That will not always be easy, but it is going to be important, isn't it? Let's pray for God's help to do this. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you for this passage that reminds us so clearly that true privilege and true security is found in a relationship with Jesus. Our Father, please forgive us that we often, well, we, we struggle to trust this and we often want to hedge our bets and have worldly security and worldly privilege as well. Please help us to trust you and to believe your word about the security and privilege you've given to your people in Jesus 
and about the untrustworthiness and insecurity of the things that we often cling to in worldly uh, privilege and security. Our Father, we want to model these things to our children. We want to model it to others, our friends. Our Father, please help us to live in ways that show that our security and privilege is bound up in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'll help us to keep remembering this and living by this. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.